We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad. On the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen, and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of Raging Bull on December 19th, 1980. It was written by Paul Schrader and Marduk Martin, based on Raging Bull, My Story, by Jake LaMotta, with Joseph Carter and Peter Savage, directed by Martin Scorsese, and released by United Artists. Working titles for the film included The Life of Jake LaMotta and The Prize Fighter. Jake LaMotta, nicknamed the Bronx Bull, fought over 100 professional fights. In his 1970 autobiography, LaMotta admitted what he'd denied over the years, that he threw his 1947 fight against Billy Fox. While working on Godfather II, De Niro read LaMotta's autobiography and brought the book to Scorsese, suggesting he direct it. Mean Street's screenwriter, Marduk Martin, put together a draft, and Taxi Driver screenwriter, Paul Schrader, did an extensive rewrite that focused the film more on the relationship between the brothers, who uh, Joey did not make an appearance in the previous drafts of the story or mm. in the book, even. Was, did he, does he exist at all? Yes. Okay. But he was not included in their version of the story. Scorsese was initially disinterested in doing a boxing film, but when he was briefly hospitalized in the late 70s from a cocaine overdose, De Niro visited him repeatedly in the hospital and eventually talked him into it. Well, what a coincidence. I was disinterested in watching a boxing film. There you go. <laughs> De Niro trained with LaMotta for a year prior to production and reached a technical level that wouldn't require a boxing double for the fight scenes. Toward the end of his training, De Niro entered three Brooklyn boxing matches and actually won two of them. Hmm. I mean, it was very convincing. Yes. As far I mean, I don't watch boxing, but from a filmmaking perspective, I was convinced that he knew what he was doing. Yeah. Production took a hiatus in order for De Niro to gain between 55 and 60 pounds to shoot the older LaMotta scenes. A record until D'Onofrio gained 70 pounds for Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. Post-production delays shifted the release date from summer to Christmas, and according to Scorsese, the decision to shoot black and white arose from a conversation with Schoonmacher's husband, British director Michael Powell, while they watched some 8mm rehearsal shots. Powell told Scorsese that the color of the gloves looked wrong to him, and Scorsese had an idea for a fix. <laughs> I'll shoot it in black and white. That'll look right. Fine. No color. You get no color. <laughs> Though some quote a line from Lamada's book where he describes his recollections of his life as having been in black and white. After the film's release, Jake and Vicky, the real people, made occasional public appearances together. And after seeing the movie together, he asked her if he was ever that bad. And Vicky said, you were much worse than that. I bet. <laughs> The film won Oscars for Actor for Robert De Niro and Editing for Thelma Schoonmacher and nominations for Picture, Supporting for Pesci, Supporting for Moriarty, Director, Cinematographer, and Sound. Yeah, and I feel like to say in Vicky's defense, 
the entire time I was watching this movie, it was very clear to me that it was not from the female perspective. Right. The film opens with slow motion footage of LaMotta warming up in a foggy ring. This is actually the ring we'll see later, where LaMotta faces off against Serdan for the middleweight championship. All the flashbulbs going off and the fog around the ring are being triggered by the same guy, cinematographer Michael Chapman, running frantically around the ring in a black velour cloak to remain invisible to camera <laughs> and make it look like pictures are being taken from all angles. We cut to 1964. You couldn't get a couple PAs? Apparently not. <laughs> no. We cut to 1964 New York at an appearance by former boxer Jake LaMotta. The footage is sort of documentary style, and we're hanging out with him in a dressing room area, and he's reciting a bit of poetry from his life. I remember those chairs. They still ring in my ears. And for years, they remain in my thoughts. Because one night, I took off my robe, and what I do? I forgot to wear shorts. I recall every fall, every hook, every jab. The worst way a guy can get rid of his flab. He stumbles a bit with the words, but eventually comes to the part that inspires the book and film's title. And though I'm no Olivier, if before Sugar Ray he would say that the thing ain't the ring, it's to play. So give me a stage where his bull here can rage. And though I can fight, I'd much rather recite. That's entertainment. Robert Jr.'s transformation is so significant that as we start this movie, this is the first time we're seeing him. I didn't recognize him. Yeah. I, I didn't I didn't figure out that that was him until after we cut back. And I was like, oh, that was him just because it's so it was so unexpected for me. I've never seen him look like that. Well, he's he's got a lot more weight on him. It's also mostly in his face, which is just interesting that he gains weight that way. Because I think it's what makes you less recognizable. That it's not just a gut. Yeah. That it's his yeah. whole head changes yeah. shape. It, I mean, it was but amazing. But he's also wearing a facial prosthetics in the form of like a flattened nose. And he looks kind of beaten down a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But it, it was it, the transformation is so dramatic. I yes. didn't I didn't realize it was him until we flashed back. And then I was like, wait a minute. That's him. Yes. We jump back in time to 1941, and Jake LaMotta is in the corner of the ring facing off against Jimmy Reeves at the Cleveland Arena. LaMotta is undefeated, but well behind on points. A bell rings, sending the men to their corners, and LaMotta's brother Joey is asking him to just finish the fight already. They didn't come to Cleveland to lose. The crowd is ruthless, and they're all throwing each other around outside the ring. In the 10th round, LaMotta speeds up, and knocks Reeves to the ground multiple times. After Reeves gets up the second time, LaMotta pins him to the ropes with a barrage of body shots and a handful of headshots, but unfortunately he holds him against the ropes for too long, and the ref can't get a 10 count before the round ends, and the fighters are being judged by their points and not the knockout. So this is a running problem that I have with the film, is that I know absolutely nothing about boxing, and... It just, like, the fact that all these things revolve around the scoring and and how he's doing in the fights, like, I just wish that it it didn't matter. Yeah, there's basically three levels to a victory. There's knockout, which is you hit the person, they hit the ground, they don't get up in 10 seconds. Technical knockout, where the person has to surrender the fight because they're not capable of continuing the fight, yeah. even if they weren't knocked out. Yeah. And a point system which is over the course of 10 rounds they are literally counting 
the amount of punches that were thrown that connected and the whole way through it to like judging people on their right. form the right. way you would for like a gymnastics yeah i was team. gonna say it's a, it's a gymnastics essentially thing. yeah <laughs> Uh, but because this guy was so far ahead yeah. on points, it doesn't matter that he technically it, – it was an official knockout, but they didn't get to the 10 count because – But this isn't interesting to me. I no, just, I agree. I, 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 it might be realistic to the life of this boxer, but it's not – it's not an interesting way to run this film, I think, to right. be like, oh, it's it's about points. And it also seems like the rules are different in Cleveland than they are in New York where he typically right. fights because – he didn't know how long the round was supposed to be because after the fight, they're reminding him like, this is Cleveland. This is the rounds are different here. So now you screwed up basically. Yeah. And the panel of judges side with Jimmy Reeves as a unanimous victor in this fight. The crowd is losing their shit because they just saw Jake LaMana knock the guy out. And that should be the end of the fight. And they start throwing chairs into the ring. They're stampeding through the venue over women in the audience. Yeah. A dude does like a complete like triple flip into the crowd. There's all these insane like stunt set pieces of people just throwing people around here. That is something that stood out to me was the amount of setups and shots that they have to do for all of these crazy scenes is just ridiculous. I'm like, I would not want to have to produce a film like this. And Scorsese specifically shot these single camera with the intention of getting each insert individually (laughs) planning out the whole scene yeah jake throws his arms up in the ring as if he won and the crowd loves it but they know that this fight will be officially recorded for reeves we cut from this unfolding riot which is a real thing that happened a riot broke out at this fight to the bronx new york city 1941 joey lamata is walking through the bronx with salvi an associate of tommy como's local organized crime boss he is advising Joey to talk some sense into Jake about working with Tommy. He insists that without Tommy's help, that his brother will be stuck in these dead-end fights and he'll never have a chance at the title. I'm never super clear on what Tommy does. Tommy is a mafioso type mm-hmm. who can make things happen behind the scenes. He can organize these fights so that he gets a chance at the title, yeah. but if he refuses to cooperate with them and help them earn money, they're never going to even put him so in So he's matches. just an influential dude yes okay he's not like the head of any sort of boxing association no, not a boxing association more like uh like the godfather he's okay. like more a mafioso type yeah because later on they'll have a discussion where joey is telling him that no one no one you can't fight anybody because no one no one's gonna fight you and i think that that's because the mob boss is holding back on letting people fight him right mm. and so they, he comes up with the plan later which we'll get to that you can do this and this and either way you have to get a shot at the title and and you do it on your own yeah joey says it's not easy to convince jake of anything but that he'll at least try to talk to him before telling salvi to fuck off like all right i i agreed to what you asked me for leave me the fuck alone go away in his apartment jake lamada is picking on his wife who assumed that that night he was out cheating on her and not at a fight He asks if the steak she's cooking is done, and she says not yet. He demands it anyway, assuming that she's going to cook it to a charcoal, and eventually she just hands it over. I'm guessing that when he saw it, he realized it was not done. Yeah. And instead of admitting he was wrong, he flips the whole table and starts shouting at her for being pissed off at him in the first place. Inside, Joey sees right away that Jake is in no mood for a conversation. He and his wife are shouting at each other, 
and the fighting gets so loud that a neighbor downstairs starts shouting at them from outside the window jake starts shouting down to that guy that he's going to kill their dog if he doesn't mind his own business jake is especially pissed off when the man calls him an animal who's an animal your mother's an animal you son of a bitch you're gonna find your dog dead in the hallway tomorrow for whatever reason, you can tell that this is getting under Jake's skin, and he's very upset by this phrase in particular. His wife hides in another room, knocking things over and breaking things, and then Joey sits down with Jake at the counter, and he says, You can't keep eating and drinking and fighting with girls like this. You need to straighten your life out. Jake confesses that what's bothering him at the moment is not any of this, but that his hands are too small, because it means he can never fight a heavyweight champ. Are the hands that determination? <laughs> well, the weight in general is a determination of it. Yeah, but, but also, if heavier. your hands are very small, you're not, you're probably not viable in that weight class. Well, and, and that's what also bothered me. The whole point of this thing, he seems like he's worried about gaining weight. It's like, well, why can't he gain weight and go into another weight class? Because yeah. his hands are too small. I don't know. Too much of this movie to me revolves around the technical aspects of boxing. Yes. Joey tells him that he could still be the middleweight champ and that it's crazy to complain about not being able to fight in a weight class that you don't belong to. Suddenly, Jake is asking his brother to hit him in the face and Joey resists for as long as he physically can, but eventually agrees to it with his hand wrapped in a towel. But Jake demands a bare fist punch and eventually Joey concedes and cracks him in the face enough times to reopen all of his cuts from the fight the night before. Apparently, on set, the two of them are actually punching each other in the face for this scene. I don't know if that's true, but... It, do- it doesn't look like it. Honestly, the way they have the camera framing on him... It doesn't look it like, looks like he's Pesci pulling... is getting hit at the very least. No, but the when he's when he's, no, when he's hitting De Niro, it doesn't look like he's getting hit. It, yeah. they, they framed it very intentionally, and it kind of looks fake to me. Yeah. Like he's pulling it. We cut to the local gym where Jake and Joey are sparring, and a group of mafioso types suddenly show up to say hello. Jake is visibly upset to see them here, and starts pounding on Joey, who he knows invited these guys. Apparently in the scene, De Niro actually broke one of Pesci's ribs. Salvi takes the mafia guys away when he could see that Jake isn't in a conversing mood. Joey admits that he invited them here, and Jake says, Don't ever bring them up here again, you hear me? I'm a jerk. Yeah. You're a fucking asshole. Hey, get the fucking hit me. We cut to a local swimming pool where Jake is noticing a blonde girl sunbathing. He asks Joey her name, and it's Vicky. Jake asks if any of the guys talking to her are her boyfriend, and Joey says, Don't go with nobody. She's 15 years old. Where the fuck's she gonna go? You take a couple of islands? He says he heard a rumor that Salvi had a young blonde girlfriend, and Joey says, Yeah, I don't think that's her. Joey admits that he took her out a couple of times, but he never got anywhere. Joey reminds Jake that he's married and that he should leave these young girls for him to pursue, but Jake doesn't seem to care. Back at his apartment, Jake and Joey are getting dressed to go out for a night on the town. His wife asks where they think they're going, and he says out and invites her to do the same wherever she wants. He doesn't care. She shouts at them until they leave, and then she shouts out a window at them on the sidewalk, even tossing a glass bottle down at them, which almost hits Joey. Joey and Jake get to a church dance that looks more like a nightclub and Joey is waving to a friend named Beansy who has a table set up for them. A priest stops by their table to say hello and one of the guys says, Hello, Father. You want to get late? (laughs) As the priest backs away. One of the guys sitting around this table is John Turturro 
in his first feature film oh, role. Oh, really? Yeah, but uh, he doesn't get to say anything here. Jake notices Vicky at a table full of girls across the room, and he moves outside where he notices a car full of Como's guys across the street. As a pack of troublemakers are being thrown out of the church, Jake reverses course and heads back into the dance. The next day, Jake and Joey park outside the fence around the pool and shout for Vicky. When she comes to the gate, Joey offers to introduce his brother. She seems into him right away, or maybe just his car, and he asks if she wants to go for a ride. She says she has to change first, and we cut to them on a ride somewhere. Just the two of them. Joey didn't come. Jake coaches her to sit alongside him in the driver's side with his arm over her, and he takes her out for some mini golf and helps with her swing. Her ball disappears into the miniature church and never comes out the other side. <laughs> what does that mean? means the game is over. He brings Vicky to his home. I thought he was at his dad's place calling for his dad. The tour ends in the bedroom, and they move to the bed where we cut away to a fight with Sugar Ray Robinson in Detroit of 1943. My biggest problem with movie boxing, and this movie is no exception, is that there are so many unblocked punches that would literally knock anyone out that don't seem to have any effect. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get that they're not actually hitting each other here, but just don't show that happen if that's not how real boxing works. There's, there's people put their arms up and they block punches. They don't just take punches point blank to the face over and over and over again. Yeah. Jake knocks Robinson out of the ring after a flurry of punches and flash bulbs are going off constantly. Robinson is saved by the bell. A microphone descends from above the ring as the winner is announced. This time, LaMotta wins unanimously on points against the formerly undefeated Robinson. This is the only time in the six times that they fought that he actually beat Robinson. Before we cut away, the announcer confesses that LaMotta should be offered a chance at the middleweight crown because of this win. We cut back to LaMotta's apartment where apparently he lives with Vicky now. We don't even see his wife officially leave him. There's no divorce or anything. It's just... Now he lives here with a different girl. Jake is coaxing Vicky out of the bathroom in a nightgown. You said never to touch her before a fight. Come here before I give you a beat. Said I couldn't. You've been gone for two weeks. Come here. Jake asks her to undress him on the bed and then undress herself. She's kissing him all over when he suddenly sits up. He needs to get ready for the fight and he dumps ice water into his boxers to calm himself down. Vicky sneaks up behind him and starts kissing him again. We cut to another matchup between LaMotta and Robinson. Detroit, 43, their third fight. Jake LaMotta and Sugar Ray Robinson meet for the third time. These men are unique, becoming classic rivals. These two men, fierce, powerful fighters, dangerous so much so that no other fighter will go near them. And so they fight each other. They're up to round seven, and Robinson is leading in points. Jake knocks Robinson down again, which is only Robinson's second time on the floor in his entire career after the last time Jake knocked him down. This time, Robinson unanimously wins the judges. We cut backstage, where Joey is so pissed off that he's destroying chairs in the locker room. Joey says that the judges only awarded Robinson the win because he's headed off to the war shortly. Jake sends Joey to see that Vicky gets home all right because he doesn't want to see her like this after having lost. We cut to Jake with his fist in a bucket of ice water. LaMotta versus Zivik, Detroit, January 14th, 1944. 
We only get quick flashes of the fights in this montage, and then we cut to home video of Jake, Vicky, and Joey. Which this is, is the only color footage that we get. Right. Before this, we did see the title was red mm-hmm. over black and white footage, but other than that, this is the only color that we have in the whole film. Lamada versus Basora, New York, August 10th, 1945. Again, quick flashes of the fight, like one or two frames, and then we cut to wedding footage of Jake and Vicky. So apparently he's completely divorced his previous wife and is now married again. Lamada versus Kochan, New York, September 17th, 1945. The fights are coming and going faster now. Jake and Vicky play alongside a pool, and she pushes him in, and then he drops her in. Lamada versus Edgar, Detroit, June 12th, 1946. After that quick fight, we see Joey marrying Teresa Saldana as Lenore. Lamada versus Satterfield, Chicago, September 12th, 1946. We see Jake carry Vicky up the steps to their new home together, and now they have kids. Lamada versus Bell, New York, March 14th, Pi Day, 1947. <laughs> Jake is winning all these fights, by the way. Pelham Parkway, Bronx, New York, 1947. We see Jake come downstairs to chew Joey out for setting up a fight with someone named Janeiro. Apparently, to even qualify for the fight, Jake would have to lose 13 pounds, which he seems to think is impossible. He doesn't know if he can make it down to 155, and if he doesn't, he's going to lose $15,000. Oh, you're supposed to be a manager. You're supposed to know what you're doing. I did just what I wanted to do. That's what I'm worried about. You did. Ex- you want a title shot? What are you talking You want a title what shot? Is, what am I in? What, what am I in? A circus over here? I asked him. He's got more sense about this. What are you, you doing? You've been killing yourself for three years now, right? There's nobody left for you to fight. Everybody's afraid to fight you. Okay, along comes this kid, Gennaro. He don't know any better. He's a young kid, up and coming, and fight anybody. Good, you fight him. Then Joey explains that the weight doesn't really matter because if he can't get under 155, then he loses the fight and the money, but more people will be willing to fight him knowing that he just lost. And if he wins, then they have to give him a shot at the title because there's nobody else to fight. If you win, you win. If you lose, you still win. There's no way you can lose. And you'll do it on your own just the way you wanted to do without any help from anybody. You understand? Just get down to 155 pounds, you fat bastard. You stop eating. In the kitchen, Vicky jumps into the conversation to say that Joey's right and that this Janeiro kid is good-looking and popular and that if he beats him, they'll have to give him a shot. Obviously, the only part Jake heard is that she thinks that this guy is good-looking and he starts chewing her out for that. Jake asks her to leave the room and take the kid with her. Joey's wife comes to her defense and is similarly dismissed from the kitchen. Joey starts to talk Jake through the training for their fight, but Jake is still distracted by the fact that Vicky thinks this boxer is good-looking. He asks Joey if he ever saw her do anything suspicious and asks him to keep an eye out. We cut from here to the Copacabana Lounge. A comedian on stage introduces the world's leading middleweight contender, the Bronx Bull, the Raging Bull. Let's hear for the great Jake LaMotta, ladies and gentlemen. From his booth, Jake notices Vicky talking to Salvi as though she knows him. Salvi tells her that he's here with Tommy and some of the gang and invites them to join him. Salvi heads over to Jake and Joey's table to invite them personally to Tommy's table. Vicky stops by to say hello, and when she gets back, Jake starts interrogating her about why she said anything to anybody over there. Of course, he assumes she's flirting and she denies it. Tommy sends a pack of drinks over in the middle of their disagreement, and Joey goes to sit with Tommy. Joey and Tommy together wave Jake over until he reluctantly joins the table. The guys around the table talk about Janeiro and his pretty boy reputation. 
He doesn't have any scars, which means he doesn't really have much experience either. They ask Jake if he's gained a little weight, and he admits he has, but that he'll lose it easily. Tommy Como asks Jake flat out, if you were me and you were betting on you, how much would you tell me? I would say bet everything you got. Everything. Everything. He tells the guys, he's so pretty, I don't know whether to fuck him or fight him. Tommy thinks this is hilarious, and the whole table cracks up. Jake finds Vicky in bed when he gets home, and he asks why she said what she said about Janeiro, being pretty. And in her half-asleep voice, she tells him that she doesn't even know what she's talking about, and she's never seen the guy. We cut right to the fight with Janeiro. It was during this fight that I first got the impression that maybe Vicky had never heard of Janeiro, and just said he was pretty to motivate Jake to beat this guy mercilessly. But... I don't think that's the case moving forward. No, I, I, I think she was probably, if she never saw him, she was just repeating what she had heard. Mm-hmm. Or she knew exactly who it was and thought that he was good looking and just wasn't careful enough to not admit that in front of Jake. But Jake destroys this kid and wins the fight by unanimous decision. He ain't pretty no more. We cut to Jake jogging in a sauna full of steam. A trainer steps inside and he begs for a sliver of ice to put under his tongue but he's trying to lose water weight and the trainer says, nope, you got to lose four more pounds. We cut to the Copacabana where Joey is chatting up a couple of older guys about his brother's match with Gennaro. He notices Vicky come in with Salvi and some other friends and he's completely distracted from his conversation by her presence. He takes Vicky by the arm and tells her that she's leaving immediately. They argue for a moment. They argue for a moment and Vicky heads back to the table, but right away Joey is there to drag her by the arm again. Salvi tries to convince Joey that this is just an innocent get-together and they're just having a few drinks. Joey tells him repeatedly to shut up, eventually shattering a glass on the table, and Salvi still isn't getting the hint. Joey pretends to apologize for the disruption, but then leans forward and smashes a second glass on Salvi's face before leaping over the table to pummel him into the booth for the classic Joe Pesci moment of the scene. (laughs) Joey follows Vicky out of the club and then Salvi follows Joey. Joey hides by the door until Salvi comes out and then he beats him with a stanchion and throws him down the club steps eventually slamming his head in the door of a taxi cab at the curb. This is by far the best moment of the entire film. Yeah. Yes. Joe, Joe Pesci freaking out on this guy is amazing. Which is crazy because at this point in his career, Pesci had almost nothing to his name. He was in a couple movies before this, and he had basically retired from acting for four years before Scorsese talked him into taking this role. <laughs> and it's amazing. He's incredible. A crowd of men try to stop him from slamming this guy's head in the door, and then Joey breaks free and climbs over the top of the car to escape following Vicky away from the club. Later, Joey and Salvi meet together at the Debonair Club to make amends with Tommy, the head of, you know, the local families. He orders them to shake hands, and Joey extends his hand first. Everybody promises to get past this and pretend it never happened, and Tommy asks if he can speak with Joey alone. When Salvi stands to leave, Joey gives him a quick and painful hug. Tommy tries to put it as simply as he can. He needs Jake to cooperate so they can make some money for the neighborhood people. Joey tries to explain. He likes to do things his own way. 
I mean, Jesus Christ could come off the cross sometimes. You don't give a fuck. He's going to do what he wants to do. He wants to make it on his own, you know? Thinks he can make it on his own. Make it on his own. Tommy points out that this is a pipe dream and that he'll never get a shot at the title on his own. If he doesn't cooperate with the people who set these fights up, then he's going to waste his entire career fighting bums. I can't tell if forcing Jake into this agreement is a punishment for Joey beating up Salvi or not. I have no idea. Because Salvi is already like a part of the mm-hmm. group. Like he's a he's in the family. He's mm-hmm. in the, the the people that control these neighborhoods. And so it feels like Tommy is saying, this is what you're going to do in exchange for this truce that I just organized. Well, I would say that it's it seemed like they were trying to keep him out of having a chance at the title before this right. moment. Yes. But what they ask him to do after he agrees is probably the revenge for this. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because he has to give up on his chance for the title. We cut from this conversation to Joey racing through pouring rain to meet with Jake at the public pool to deliver Tommy's message. Apparently, Jake knew this meeting was going to happen and doesn't even ask Joey what they ended up talking about because he's too distracted thinking about having met Vicky here. Joey tells him to stop obsessing over this girl and to get her out of his life so he can focus on the fighting. Eventually, Jake asks what orders have been handed down from Tommy Como, and Joey says, essentially, you have to lose a fight. With Billy Fox, you're going to take a dive and you have to lose this fight for them to make some money and then in exchange for that they're going to set you up with a title shot right we cut to the fight where the commissioner takes jake and joey on a walk to discuss suspicious changes in the odds for this fight they notice that a lot of people are betting against jake even though he's clearly favored to win and he's like are are you guys rigging this or what's going on why does this why does it look like this is a fix And they tell him, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to win this fight. It doesn't matter. And the guy tells him that... It's not good. As a matter of fact, the bets are off on this one. Nothing going on this one. matter of fact, smart money is saying that you're getting ready to hit the tank. That's bullshit. Yeah, it's bullshit. You got any money you want to bet? No, I'll take the action. You bet it on Fox, because I'm going to win. There's no way I'm going down. I don't go down for nobody. That's what I I want you to know that. All right, Kanye. You came down here just for that nonsense. That was it? Tommy arrives to watch the fight and presumably reap his winnings. The bell rings to kick off the fight and the boxers approach each other. Jake's first punch lands hard and his opponent is almost already knocked out. He fakes a few missed punches trying to help the guy stand up in the corner of the ring and the fight is such a monumental mismatch that it's obvious to everyone immediately what's going on. The guy is cowering away from Jake, even as the round ends and they're separating. Jake's trainer is slapping him in the corner, asking what the fuck is happening. In another round, we see Jake against the ropes, and this guy lands punch after punch in Jake's face, and he just stands there taking it, asking the guy to please punch harder to sell this dive. Well, but he's not willing to dive. Right, he wants to lose on points because he's not willing to collapse. Yeah. People in the audience are already calling out the dirty fight, though. After four rounds, the fight is called, and the winner by technical knockout is Billy Fox. Unfortunately, even though he did what they said, it was such a bad fake loss that none of the bets got paid out because the commission is now looking into the coordinated loss by Jake. In the locker room, Jake is sobbing, and everyone around him is equally disgusted by this pathetic scene. Don't fight anymore. It's a free country. Don't fight anymore. 
We cut right to newspaper headlines about the board suspending LaMotta for rampant cheating. Because nobody got paid for the loss, Tommy and his people are slow to reward Jake with a title shot. Post was withheld. Look at this. Post was withheld pending DA's probe. Look at that. Joey assures him that as long as Tommy doesn't die, he'll fulfill his promise of a title shot for Jake, which I assumed was foreshadowing, but we don't see him die in the movie. We cut to two years later, Detroit, June 15th, 1949, one week after my father was born. We see a standee for the middleweight championship fight between Marcel Sardin and Jake LaMotta in the lobby of a building. For some reason, the fight is being delayed at the last minute for an extra day, and Jake is pissed about it, but Joey's pointing out, it's an outdoor arena, we don't have a choice. Jake's corner men are practicing stitching up a busted eyebrow with a big hunk of meat. <laughs> they aren't fast enough. <laughs> no, they're taking 40 seconds and it should only be 30 like a pit stop like a mm -hmm. crew yeah. changing their tires while he's still on the phone joey asks if vicky wants anything from room service food wise she asks for cake joey tells her that she should have a regular meal like a burger and fries and jake is immediately suspicious about his brother dictating what his wife should eat and tells her it's a free country if you want a cake order a cake she asks for a cheeseburger tommy comes to check in with jake before the fight and on his way out tommy keeps kissing jake's wife and Joey's watching all of this smiling. We're seeing all of this from Jake's perspective in tight inserts, and it's clearly bothering him that all these people are kissing his wife. When Tommy's gone, he calls Vicky over to ask what the hell that was all about, and immediately Joey stands up, prepared to run interference on what is about to be a domestic uh, disturbance. Jake reminds her in the future to just say hello or goodbye, none of this kissing stuff, and even after she agrees, he slaps her hard. Joey moves in closer, in case he has to interrupt a full-blown fight. When Jake grabs her by the arm a last time, Joey finally intervenes. Why don't you stop that, huh? Shut stop up! it! Shut up! Shut up! I'll fucking take care of you later! Shut up! We cut to a last-minute training session in the locker room where Jake is punching his brother in the chest as he wears this big rubber pad around his torso. We get a long tracking shot from the warm-up all the way through the tunnels leading to the ring. The fighters tap gloves, and we see LaMotta versus middleweight champion Marcel Serdan, Detroit, 1949. LaMotta wastes no time. Jake bashes the guy's ribs and head until he's very confused on the sidelines. By the end of round nine, his cornermen have to call the fight because he clearly doesn't even know where he is anymore. Jake has his championship. He gets the belt and cries in the ring as he lifts his gloves to the sky, and we cut to Pelham Parkway, New York, 1950. Jake is trying to fix a television by pounding on it instead of just adjusting the rabbit ears. Vicky enters the room and bends over to give Joey a kiss on the lips before checking in with her husband. He asks where she's been, and she says shopping, her sisters, and then she heads upstairs. Smile with you, huh? What's with this kissing on the mouth? I just said hello. Can I kiss my sister on? And it's cheek good enough for you? I don't even kiss mom on the mouth the way you kiss. All of a sudden, you're like a Romeo. So you're not supposed to kiss your mother on the mouth. That's what I'm talking about. Jake is obviously not done being suspicious of his brother and works on the TV for a moment more. Jake asks Joey what happened between him and Salvi at the Copacabana. Evidently, word has made it back to Jake. He says Salvi got inappropriate at the club and it started a fight that ended with him slamming Salvi's head in a taxi door. Jake wants to know why he never heard this story until recently. Joey claims it didn't have anything to do with Jake, but obviously Jake's heard the story and knows that Vicky was also there. That's not what I heard, Joe. 
What do you mean that's not what you heard? That's not what I heard. Well, what'd you hear? I heard some things. You heard about me and Salvi? Yeah, I heard things, Joey. Yeah, you heard that I cracked Salvi all around. What'd you things, hear? Joey. I heard things. What things you heard? I heard some things. This has become another one of the film's more memorable lines to repeat. And as the argument progresses, Jake gets more and more suspicious of Joey's motives. You fucked my wife. What? You fucked my wife. How could you ask me a question like that? How could you ask me? I'm your brother. You ask me that? Where do you get your balls big enough to ask me that? Joey refuses to dignify the question with a response. I... There's a there's a section of uh, Eddie Izzard's Dress to Kill, which I think I because I had never seen this movie before, yeah. and so I don't think I ever got that reference until I saw this scene. <laughs> you fuck my wife. You fuck my wife. You fuck my wife. You fuck my wife. I am your wife. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. I say again, you fuck my wife. I fucked your wife. I am your wife and I fucked her. (laughs) (laughs) He tells Jake that he's leaving and he walks out. Without a straight answer from Joey, he heads to ask Vicky herself. He asks where she's been and she says she went to the movies to see Father of the Bride. They argue for a moment about why she kept the Copacabana story secret and then he starts slapping her around. She hides in her bathroom and he breaks down the door to continue beating on her. The argument culminates with Vicky admitting that, yes, she's had sex with Joey and Salvi and Tommy and everybody. Jake marches right out the door, and Vicky tries in vain to slow him down on his way to Joey's house. Apparently, they live within walking distance. Yeah. Jake walks right into Joey's kitchen and yanks him away from the table with his family. He drags him into the den and punches him repeatedly in the face as Lenore and Vicky try to pull him off. Vicky drags Jake away by the hair until he clocks her in the face and knocks her unconscious. And then Jake just walks out. And the kids are, like, right yeah. there. And yeah. that, that was really the disturbing part to me, because I'm like, uh, my first priority would be getting the kids yeah, out Lenore of Lenore should room. have been moving the kids. Right, not, not participating. Get the kids out of there. Wait, does that mean that if someone comes into our house to beat me up, you're just going to yes, move the kids Yes, my first priority around? is you're moving the children. You're not going to pull them away from me by their hair? <laughs> that's, that's fair. We cut back to Jake's own living room where he's watching the out-of-focus television with the bad V-hold and H-hold because he doesn't know how to use these antennas. Vicky arrives late at night and starts to pack her bags and Jake slips into the room and calmly begs her to stay, insisting he's a mess without her. He hugs her and they kiss and it seems like they actually make up here, which is unfortunate. This this was the moment where I officially stopped caring about Vicky. Yeah. Yeah. We cut back to the ring for the first fight with LaMotta defending his championship. LaMotta's already losing as we enter the fight. It's against Dotiel in Detroit of 1950. Apparently, the guy Jake won the championship from died in a plane crash. And this yeah. is another boxer, also from France, who promised on his behalf to bring the championship back to their country. Dotiel has Jake against the ropes, and after just standing and taking hits for a moment, Jake turns on him and the announcers recognize he's been playing possum. He starts pounding Dotiel from every angle, and we're watching as his skin is just bursting and blood is spurting out all over his face. Dotiel is unable to stand for a 10 count after this barrage, and Jake has defended his title with 13 seconds left in the final round. I think he was like waiting till the last second just to give the guy hope. After the fight, we see Jake and Vicky walking arm in arm through the venue. She suggests calling Joey to apologize, 
and offers to make the call herself and then hand him the phone. He gives her a coin to make the call after thinking about it for a solid 30 seconds. Vicky hands Jake the phone once she's gotten through to Joe, and Joe doesn't seem to know who's on the phone and assumes it's Salvi, but he can hear someone breathing. I know somebody's there. I can hear you breathing. You listening? Your mother sucks fucking big fucking elephant dicks. You got that? Jake subtly smiles hearing this from his brother, but hangs up without having said anything to Joey. We cut in slow motion to another fight with Sugar Ray Robinson, and Lamada is not looking good in his corner. After a round, we see Joey and Lenore watching the fight at home. In the next round, Jake steps away from his corner and doesn't block any of Robinson's punches. He just takes them all full force in the face to show Robinson that he can't knock him down. Ray loses his patience and starts demolishing Jake against the ropes, and now it's his turn to pull a dotiel and get his skin busted everywhere. Blood is shooting out in all directions, including a mouthful sprayed across the judges' panel. In slow motion, we see Robinson wind up one last right hook. Finally, the ref calls the fight, even though Lamata refuses to go down. Jake wanders blindly over to Robinson's corner with his face completely swollen shut and taunts Robinson by pointing out, Hey, Ray. Hey, Ray. Never went down, Ray. You never got me down, Ray. Robinson has now won the championship from Jake. The camera floats through the ring past Jake's disappointed team and Robinson's excited team to stop on a section of rope drenched in Jake's blood and dripping. Apparently this is one of the images that inspired Scorsese to move forward with making a boxing film. He watched a couple of fights in Madison Square Garden mm -hmm. and he saw how the the ropes were sometimes soaked in the blood of the fighters and he was like, that's such an interesting image. There, I mean, there's a lot of great imagery in this film. Yeah, it's beautiful. But the, 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 it's lacking, I think, in complexities yep. for the characters and the story. Yeah. And it's just not, not super interesting. We cut to Miami, 1956. This is bigger LaMotta now, and a reporter is asking LaMotta why he just pulled out of his next fight, and he says that he can't be concerned with his weight anymore. He spent too much of his life obsessing over it. He instructs the reporters to take pictures of his happy family, and then he announces that he'll be opening up a nightclub soon and invites them to guess on what he plans on calling it. We see the exterior of Jake LaMotta's nightclub. That's what it's called. Kind of reminds me of the Mr. Burns's Casino. Yeah. <laughs> I know what people need. A clever name and sex appeal. <laughs> Perfect. Inside the club, he's holding a microphone and he rubs it on the dress of a girl sitting on the bar stool next to him as some kind of a joke. People there seem to think it's funny. Just want to see what the, what the microphone on a sexy girl sounds like. He tests some of his bad stand-up routine into the mic and the crowd really gets a kick out of it. At the end of his stand-up set, which was a solid one minute maybe, He's backed up by an instrumental track and recites the poem that he was practicing backstage to start the film. So give me a stage where this bully can rage. And though I can fight, I'd much rather hear myself recite. Not that he's been painted in a flattering light thus far, but LaMotta is really taken down a thousand pegs by this whole sequence because he seems absolutely pathetic here. People are still applauding him, but it's like he's a mascot, not like he's a human being that they envy. Jake goes to talk with some guests, 
and one of them introduces a state's attorney who's there with his wife. Nice to meet you. Well, you shouldn't be here this week. It's next week we got the shakedown payments, right? Guy sent you That is a joke. It's a joke. Only you know if it's a joke. We'll talk about it later. He accidentally spills a drink on the guy's wife and then calls for someone to send a free drink over. Jake is drawn into a trio of girls at the bar who are arguing over whether they look 21 or not. He asks them one at a time how old they are and to prove that they're 21 by kissing him one at a time. Later in the night, we see Jake pouring champagne into a tower of champagne glasses for the three girls. A man comes in to tell him that Vicky is waiting outside. Outside, we see it's actually fully morning by now. He goes to speak with her and explains that he stayed till morning because it was a very busy night last night. She informs him through the cracked driver's side window that she's leaving him. I'm leaving you, Jake. All right, well, so... No, I mean it this time. I didn't want to tell you until I had everything worked out. Jake tries to get into the car or convince her to let him into the car, but she's made up her mind. She's contacted an attorney and she expects full custody of the children. She drives away. Later, we see LaMotta, sweaty, in bed, and two men enter his apartment. They're from the DA's office and they're here to ask him about a girl who was recently seen hanging out in his club. I, I think he's sleeping in the club. Yeah, I think so too, actually. He's like in a back room because mm-hmm. he's not in a bed. From the picture they show him, he tells them he doesn't recognize the girl, and they refresh his memory with the detail that he supposedly introduced her to some men. When they tell him that this particular girl was 14 years old, he asks to see the picture again. You would have told me that that girl looks 14. She's 14. I'm going to ask you man to man. What am I going to say? Now, come on, we got to go. We got to go downtown? That's right. LaMotta is arrested and brought downtown. We cut to Jake knocking on Vicky's door. He's out on bail, and he's looking to find $10,000 worth of sports memorabilia to sell so he can stay out of jail. Vicky doesn't want to let him in because the kids are sleeping, and he promises to be quiet. My lawyer says if I can spread $10,000 around, I can get the case dropped. Right away, he's making a lot of noise. He gets his championship belt out of a drawer, and he starts prying the jewels off of it. He's hitting it with a hammer. Jake, you're going to wake my kids up, Jake. You're going to wake the He's hammering it so much that plates on a shelf in the foreground are shaken to the point of falling over and shattering. What's the matter with you? Don't you put the dishes so they don't fall down? Oh, get out. We cut right to a pawn shop or something where he's trying to sell these jewels, and the guy there says, these would be worth a lot more if you'd brought them in on the belt. I wish you'd talked to me earlier. He asks for 2000 but the guy offers 1500 tops. He probably could have gotten 10000 with the belt with the <laughs> jewels on it. Yeah. Do you think that he removed the gems from the belt because he wasn't willing to give up the belt? I don't know. I, I honestly don't think he cared that much about the belt. Yeah. Okay. I think I think he just thought the gems were worth money and he didn't think belts were worth money. Okay. Because he's a dummy. Yeah. But that would make sense, too, if he was like, well, I'm willing to give up the gems, but this is my heavyweight belt, so I want to keep that. So it could work either way. But I think he's literally just so stupid that he was just like, oh, I know gems are worth money. I have some gems on my thing. I'll go get those. We cut to Jake in a phone booth with his gut hanging out of his tiny shirt, and he's telling someone that he can't make the $10,000. And then we cut immediately to him being dragged into the Dade County Stockade in Florida, 1957. It takes two cops all of their strength to wrangle him into his cell. It's apparently like a solitary confinement situation, and he shouts after them until they're completely out of earshot, and then moves to the back wall, where he's pounding his head and fists into the wall. One, one, two, 
Looking forward, this actually reminds me a lot of Joaquin Phoenix in The Master when he's beating himself against the bars of his jail cell with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Eventually, Jake collapses into the shadows of his cell. He's talking to himself through tears, and we get the second moment of the year with a character in black and white declaring out loud that he is not an animal. I'm not an animal. I'm not an animal. Suddenly... We hear more of his stand-up, and we cut to New York City, 1958. He's on a slightly smaller stage now, and we cut to the wide shot to see that it's no longer his club, but a small dive bar that he's appearing as a guest at. The crowd here is not as forgiving of his material. He moves to introduce a burlesque act to follow himself. Later, we see him and the dancer trying to catch a taxi outside the bar when Jake notices his brother across the street. Although, now his brother has a mustache. Looking a lot like Tony Shalhoub. He really does. <laughs> Jake tells the girl he'll catch up with her and moves to get his brother's attention. Joey takes some effort to ignore his brother's approach, but eventually Jake is just in his face, completely blocking the car. Jake wraps his arms around Joey, but isn't getting a hug in return. He's essentially demanding Joey's forgiveness because he needs something permanent in his life. He can't stop hugging and kissing Joey, and it's really pissing Joey off. We don't have to do this here. Come on. We can call you in a couple days. You call me, huh? Yeah, I'll call you. He's not going to call No, me. he's not. <laughs> he for sure doesn't even have a good number for this guy. We cut to the Barbizon Plaza where guests will be doing readings of Patty Chayefsky, Rod Serling, Shakespeare, Bud Schilberg, and Tennessee Williams. In the green room, we see a light bulb, a rotary phone, some coat hangers, and we hear Jake talking to his reflection about the closing scene from On the Waterfront. The scene he's quoting is a little too close to describing the exact events of the film. Although Scorsese insists that Jake doesn't hold anything against Joey and he doesn't want people to read too much into this. Like he just picked the scene at random. But it seems like a weird scene to choose at random. It really does. It it really stood out to me. Yeah. Like, okay. It's very on-the-nose description of their yeah, disagreement. It really feels like Scorsese was just like, okay, how do I make On the Waterfront? Yeah. <laughs> But it seems like LaMotta has this whole scene at least memorized, but his delivery is obviously very bland and lackluster. De Niro could do it better because he's a solid actor. Right. I, I don't know if this is intended to be his performance versus just going through the lines, making sure he has them. Scorsese said that he wanted him deliver it flatly because, for one, LaMotta's not supposed to be a good actor. Mm. But two, he wanted to show how... Uh, dispassionate he was with the dialogue that he doesn't it doesn't resonate inside of him he doesn't blame his brother for anything that happened this this is the second time that de niro has uh, played a character that brando played after the two of them won oscars for playing the godfather in the godfather series it was you charlie you was my brother you should have looked out for me a little bit you should have looked out for me just a little bit you should have taken care of me just a little bit Instead of making me take them dice for the short end money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. It was you, Charlie. Somebody pops into his room to give Jake a five-minute warning. I think this is Martin Scorsese's cameo. Mm. 
Ready? You've got about five minutes. Okay. Need anything? Nah. You sure? I'm sure. Jake gives himself one last look in the mirror. Go get him, champ. And then he throws a flurry of punches in the air. I'm the boss, I'm the boss, I'm the boss, I'm the boss, I'm the boss. We cut to black. A title card reads, So, for the second time, the Pharisees summoned the man who had been blind and said, Speak the truth before God. We know this fellow is a sinner. Whether or not he is a sinner, I do not know, the man replied. All I know is this. Once I was blind, and now I see. John 9, 24-26, the New English Bible. Remembering Haig P. Manugian, teacher. May 23, 1916 to May 26, 1980. With love and resolution, Marty. Haig Manugian was a professor at NYU Film School. He taught both Scorsese and Thelma Schoonmacher and actually first introduced them. And that's the end of our film. It's a weird choice to end it with this line from the Bible because it's only significant to the teacher and not to the story of the film at all. Yeah, that actually really bothered me. That I'm like, it's it's great that he's making a tribute to his teacher here. And I'm sure it mattered quote, to Thelma also. Of, of course, and and I fully respect that, but I feel like it's not relevant to the movie. No, it's not. And it's a, I, I honestly think Manugian would have been like, take that off of there. Yeah. Like, if you're going to do that, like put something at the beginning Just in loving or, memories fine yeah like don't you can dedicate it to me at the quote, start it's confusing because it's not relevant to the story yeah our director here was martin scorsese he directed mean streets taxi driver king of comedy he's an uncredited director on the new joker movie according what? to me <laughs> uh he played van gogh in akira kurosawa's dreams he's a voice in shark's tale with de niro you know scorsese Classic. Don't, don't joke around with me you know who he is he also played Barbizon Stagehand in this, which I think is the guy who gives the five-minute warning. The novel was written by Jake LaMotta, who played a bartender in The Hustler, and he also has another writing credit for 2016's The Bronx Bowl, which is another life story of Jake LaMotta. The novel was co-written with Joseph Carter. This was his only credit. And Peter Savage, who appears in other Scorsese films, including as the John in Taxi Driver and Horace Morris's assistant in New York, New York. He plays Jackie Curdy in this film. Writer Paul Schrader obviously wrote Taxi Driver for Scorsese before this. He also wrote and directed American Gigolo earlier this year. He wrote Cat People, Mosquito Coast, and Bringing Out the Dead. Oh, and he's the one that was married to Mary something Beth from our uh, Change of Seasons earlier this year. Oh, was he? Yeah, she played the daughter in that movie, remember? She was married to Paul Schrader? Yeah, Mary Beth Hurt forgot that our other writer Mardik martin wrote mean streets and new york new york for scorsese before this and he plays a waiter at the copacabana michael chapman was our cinematographer he worked on taxi driver the man with two brains lost boys and then a bunch of bill murray stuff scrooged ghostbusters 2 quick change space jam editor thelma schoonmacher edited all the great scorsese movies she has oscars for this the aviator and the departed and she's obviously worked on very few non-Scorsese-directed films, including the Scorsese executive produced The Snowman in 2017 for Universal, which is why I still have emails saved from her that she sent me. <laughs> they were group emails, but still, it's always nice to see an email come from Thelma Schoonmacher. The music producer was Robbie Robertson. We had him earlier this year in Carney. 
He was the lead guitarist and songwriter for the band, and the soundtrack for Raging Bull was long tied up in rights issues and was not available for purchase until 2005. Huh. Damn. Very weird. Robert De Niro played Jake LaMotta. This was his first and last film. <laughs> no, he's in Cape Fear, Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, King of Comedy, Goodfellas, Casino, and Irishman for Marty. Which is so funny because I've seen like one of those movies yeah. that you just listed. We'll get through them. <laughs> I've seen more of his recent stuff. Yeah. You know, you didn't mention Analyze this. Hold on. I have more stuff. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> He's in Godfather, Deer Hunter, Brazil. These are more movies you haven't seen. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, <laughs> Jackie Robinson, and Meet the Parents, as Ronan. well as the Analyze This and That. Ronan, yeah. Yeah, Ronan's a good one. Kathy Moriarty played Vicky LaMotta. She'll be back next year in Neighbors. She played Sylvester's mom in Kindergarten Cop. That's the mom that's constantly hitting on Arnold yeah. in the course of the movie. She's Patty Lepresti in Analyze That. <laughs> and she's Mary Brown in But I'm a Cheerleader. She was recommended by Pesci, who was familiar with her husky voice and modeling career. This was her first film. She was only 20 years old. I uh, instantly recognized her. From which one? From Casper? From Casper. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, that was just like... <gasps> Oh my God, it's the woman from Casper who I actually get confused like in my brain. With Sharon Stone? No, I cast her as Kathleen Turner. Oh, okay. So in my brain, I was like, yeah, it was Kathleen Turner in Casper. But then I saw her and I saw this and I was like, no, 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 it's this lady. I, I think I used to confuse her with Sharon Stone because I was always thinking of Casino when I would think back on this movie. But Sharon Stone did audition for this role, but obviously she, she wouldn't play De Niro's wife until they did Casino later. Uh, but this would have been her second consecutive black and white film this year after Stardust Memories if she had been cast. Beverly D'Angelo also auditioned, but would have had to choose between this and Coal Miner's Daughter. And when she was not given this role, she took Coal Miner's Daughter, which I think was the better move for her. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Because we wouldn't have gotten to hear her sing. <laughs> she has a fantastic singing voice. Joe Pesci played Joey. Uh, he's back with Scorsese for Goodfellas, Casino, The Irishman. He's also Vinny and My Cousin Vinny. He's one of the wet bandits in the first couple Home Alones. He plays Leo Getz in three of the Lethal Weapon films. They fuck you with cell phones. <laughs> Frank Vincent played Salvi. He's Billy Bats in Goodfellas. He's Frank Marino in Casino. And he's Phil Leotardo on The Sopranos, which I haven't actually seen still. You should. It's a great show. Nicholas Colasanto played Tommy Como. He's Ruben in Fat City. He's Constantine in Family Plot. But he's best known for playing Ernie Coach Pantuso on Cheers. Uh, He's wonderful on that show. I love him so much. And eventually he had to leave the show due to complications from heart disease. And his absence was eventually filled with the introduction of Woody Harrelson's character. But uh, yeah, he was was really funny on that show. Um, He's basically like 100% dad jokes all of his yeah it was all puns and him misunderstanding people Teresa Saldana played Lenore we had her earlier this year in Defiance where we discussed her being stalked and stabbed repeatedly but surviving she survived it's okay Uh, until very recently and then she passed away but not as a result of the stabbing Frank Adonis played Patsy he's also Vinny in Ace Ventura he plays Anthony Stable in Goodfellas He's Valerio's bodyguard in Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai, and he was Frankie in True Romance. Joseph Bono played Guido. He was Mikey Franzisi in Goodfellas. He's Moosh in Casino and Frank Sindone in The Irishman. Charles Scorsese played Charlie, Man with Como. This is obviously Martin's dad, and he shows up in a bunch of Scorsese stuff. 
Don Dunphy was the radio announcer for the Dotiel fight. Uh, he plays himself because they actually used the recording of the commentators for the fight during the fight scene, hmm. just for the championship fight, I think. Um, but he is also himself in Woody Allen's Bananas, and he's also a fight announcer in The Fighter, which might, again, be uh, archival recording. Gene LaBelle played ring announcer during the Reeves fight. That's the first fight we see. We've had him so far this year doing stunts in Bronco Billy, Airplane, Battle Creek Brawl, any which way you can, and inside moves. So he's all over the place. Johnny Barnes played Sugar Ray Robinson. Uh, he played Turnbull AC in The Warriors. Marty Denkin played the referee in the Gennaro fight. He was a referee in a bunch of Rockies and Ali, so he's probably he's an probably actual an actually referee. A referee. <laughs> Robert B. Loring was cornerman number two during the Serdan fight. Earlier this year, we had him as Johan in Octagon. Michael Badalucho played Soda Fountain Clerk. This was his first credit, and we'll see him way later as George Nelson in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? and as Matilda's father in Leon the Professional. Geraldine Smith played Janet. She was a hooker earlier this year for Night of the Juggler. John Arceri played the maitre d'. Uh, he was a Christmas tree salesman in When Harry Met Sally and a chauffeur in Batteries Not Included. Mary Albee played Underage ID Girl. I don't know which one, but I can only assume <laughs> the one that they show them. the picture of. Yeah, they... I, I... In the movie, he, he looks at the two pictures. Do you tell me they're the same girl? Apparently, in real life, they are not the same girl. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> that's hilarious. Uh, but the one that was actually in the scene, she also plays pantry girl slash vampire in The Monster Squad. And she has mostly stunt credits since then, including Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Exorcist 3, Scream 3, Rush Hour 2, and The Squeakwool. Uh, also a bunch of television. Alan Joseph played the jeweler, who says, I really wish you'd brought me the belt. Uh, he plays Babe's father in Marathon Man. He was Mr. X in Eraserhead, and we'll see him next year in Saturday the 14th. So the film is a thumbs up from me. It's it's gorgeous. The I mean, the black and white was, was the obvious choice here because it looks so great in black and white, especially stuff like that first shot of the mic descending from the ceiling where it's just pitch black, like just solid black, and then suddenly this image is dripping down into the frame yeah i mean i i i totally agree with you it's a thumbs up and the black and white was an inspired choice like it's i i I was thinking about this very specifically when like he's walking down the hallway um with all these like uh you know support staff and reporters and all this stuff around him and he's wearing his his robe and he's got his you know they've got gloves like all of this stuff I, f- I think would be very distracting to the scene if it was all in color. But because and, it's black and white and because you have Michael Chapman lighting it so yeah, brilliantly. Yeah. And and the same thing for when he's in the ring and it's just, you know, the ring is white and you, you get this like stark background, but then you you sort of lose the audience too and you can really focus on the fighters. Like I yeah. think that the black and white was really the only way to do this. Yeah. there There's so much contrast mm-hmm. uh, within the ring and – and this, uh, it's also unique so far in its approach to boxing photography in that the camera's actually inside the ring with the fighters, which was not the case prior to this film. Mm-hmm. Even in Rocky, okay. the camera very rarely was inside the ring with the fighters. Um, but because he's doing it single camera, and the point is that he's planning out every single cut, basically, as yeah. he goes, that he's getting these inserts very specifically for where he wants them in the fight. And they're actually 
startlingly accurate to the archival footage of the actual yeah. fights. I think that on like a filmmaker and and skill level that this movie is amazing. I agree. And there's a lot of hesitation in everything that we're saying so far. <laughs> we're trying to give it as much credit I, as we I possibly can. I want to give can. it a lot of credit and it's and it's because I have such a problem with the the rest of the story. The, the characters just not being super deep and the story being fairly simplistic. Like I I just wanted more because right. everything else about this movie is so great. Yes. That if you could just give me a little and and I guess it's based on a true story so maybe there just isn't more there to give me right. but you know then embellish it, you know. And a lot of people <laughs> think that Jake LaMotta might not be remembered very much at all were it not for this film. Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> is it a thumbs up, Richard? Uh it's a thumbs up. Um I I uh I think it's like you've already said, it's marvelously well-crafted, well-edited, well-shot. I mean, the, the editing too, like Thelma, you know, yeah. round of applause. This is probably the best work she's ever done. And even though there's only 10 minutes of actual boxing footage, it's the most visceral boxing oh, footage yeah. you see in anything. And and I think that, you know, I, I might not even have, when I was watching it, given it as much credit as it deserves because I think people after this movie mimicked it and so right. I'm, I'm used to this style now but right because we've of seen a fight and and you've seen like snatch enough times that you're used yeah. to the the variable speed where you're mm-hmm. like in regular speed and then slowing down to indicate mm-hmm. that like focus is being drawn and people are being sucked into the moment which was not a way that they shot these kind of fight scenes before this yeah and so uh, yeah so i'm sure this this movie has has broken ground and and you know es- established a way of doing this that that wasn't done before that being said that being said <laughs> Uh, nobody like learns a significant lesson. It seems like Jake is still the same asshole at the end of the movie that yeah. he was at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't really respect Vicky when we first meet her, and I don't really respect her throughout the rest of the movie because she just makes poor decisions. I and... don't. Uh, I don't care about any of the fights, which I think is the biggest yeah. problem. Like yeah. the difference yeah. between Rocky and this is that I care who wins him. the fight in yeah. Rocky, mm-hmm. and here I don't care because they've already set up that he's a jerk, and so maybe I want him to lose the fight. So it's just kind of like, oh, I wonder how this fight will end. It's irrelevant to me, and it's basically irrelevant to the character because yeah. even when he loses the fight, we'll see him in another fight later. He mm-hmm. wins so some, he cares? loses some. That that was another thing that bothered me. There's there was a lot of like montagey moments in this movie to, to that covered a lot, and like my my producer brain was like, what a freaking pain in the ass! Like the whole. Uh, to set up all these separate fights. Yeah, all these separate fights, and ve- and and to have them all be so distinct, and then some of them you literally only get two frames. And even the whole frames. wedding scene, I'm just like, you basically put on a wedding in order to get a few shots yeah. to make yeah. a montage. Like, how obnoxious is yeah. that? But like that aside, I'm like, I don't think that they. I don't think it was necessary. It it, it didn't really serve a lot of purpose for yeah. me to see all these different fights. It didn't progress anything for me. Yeah, well, I I think of it in terms of something like, uh, the movie The Natural. Uh, that movie is a baseball movie with a lot of baseball games, and there's a lot of baseball game montages, but in the end, it comes down to this big last game. Right, and. And they build it up enough that you're like, oh, yeah, okay, this is... Now, now it's th- do or die, right? Yeah, this is really important. Despite having endless montages of endless amounts of games that don't really matter, 
like you know they they, they win some like they win some they lose some uh but in this movie like the, the last fight it just happens and then it's over uh and and you don't care who won or lost yes yeah. it's irrelevant like, it, even if he had won i'd be going well what's changed yeah. now that he's won yeah because what's changed is he defended the title again so then he has to fight someone else mm-hmm. like that's how the boxing works is you have the title until someone wins it from you the end like it's not like he was just going to retire right there uh, after losing like, to robinson it seems like <laughs> no this might just be a problem with boxing but it seems like you just defend your title every month you know it's like okay or or more month. often or than even that. more often they, than at, that. at the time at least like nowadays so like who cares <laughs> yeah the, the big fighters that are like literally like the the people wearing the belts fight like once a year or maybe once every other year yeah. but it, two of these fights with robinson happened within three weeks of each other yeah. they said yeah but I, I mean another problem and this is just you know me and maybe the era in which i'm watching this film i don't like watching people beat each other up yeah is, i've never liked boxing. it is it is brutal and awful but neither to did watch. Scorsese. yeah and i'm like i don't enjoy this yeah. there's nothing about this that i enjoy watching two people just pummel each other in the head this is yeah. dumb yeah <laughs> um yeah it's it's technically it's gorgeous and the performance from de niro is incredible everything he's doing is amazing yeah and i i don't fault him for the fact that there's not enough to the character yeah and no. i think that he he shows incredible range not just in you know the uh, the obvious stuff with the weight gain but just in terms of uh going from you know uh this pathetic loser by the end of the film it's not just that he's heavier it's that he's more vulnerable and that he's sadder at the end of the film than he starts the film like at the beginning he doesn't care what anybody thinks and he's suspicious of everybody and by the end of the film he's just a shell of his former self and you feel the difference in the person yeah um and i but I th- but he's still an asshole who hasn't learned anything <laughs> yeah but he's not he's not trying to pick fights with everybody anymore now it's just like like i feel like the jake lamada at the beginning of the film if two cops showed up and showed him hey this picture of this girl he'd be like get the fuck out of here like there's no way they would be able to drag him into a cell or even arrest him for any of this stuff and you know instead of saying like hey this girl's 14 at the beginning they're like like hey this girl's only 15 it's like cool i do <laughs> then now we're married because well, the difference a year makes <laughs> yeah i think it's a thumbs up but for me it's it's not going super high on my list because yeah i don't there's not a story here that i'm following that i care about there's no character for me to identify with outside of maybe joey i mean i don't think it has for me it does not have a lot of rewatchability to it because i mean aside from maybe as research for you know shooting a fight scene or you know just a, a well-composed movie i i don't need to see it again here's another question did joey have sex with vicky i don't think so never they never had sex i don't think so i because... ne- never occurred to me that they did i thought he was just i thought that he was you know jake was just being a jealous asshole well she says that they did yeah, because she just is like, oh, you think we did? Fine, then we did. Because it doesn't but matter she, what I tell you. But she doesn't try to contradict herself when he starts marching over to Joey's place at all. 
She doesn't say like, look, I just said that because you won't stop bugging me about it. This didn't actually happen. I don't know. Like, I, don't she never think it, tries I don't think it matters it. what anybody tells him. So, Because I always, having watched it in the past, thought that they did before they got married. Like when Joey says, oh, I took her out a couple of times, but nothing happened. I thought the implication was... He did take her out a couple of times, and they did have sex back then, but Joey never told Jake about it because he knew that Jake was into her. I don't know. And that when she had sex with Salvi and Tommy, that that she literally had sex with all those people, but before Jake was married to her, before Jake even knew who she was. I don't know. Maybe. I, but the I, fact that I, they I don't kind spell just, that out bothers me. I, I kind of just assumed that he was just being a jealous jerk, and when she you know just says yeah fine we did then it was just her being like i'll tell you whatever you want to hear just you know leave me alone yeah i'm in that camp with jesse yay but if you're just trying to get him to leave you alone then why chase him down the street and get in front of him for him to knock you down to the sidewalk or try and rip him off of joey well i mean she does she obviously doesn't want the stupid thing that she just said to cause him to kill her his brother then why why say it in the first place because or why people not say stupid it? things when they're fighting i don't know i the, <laughs> the it bothers me that it's so unclear whether or not they did have sex because yeah. when joey says no it didn't happen and he's he's all cagey about yeah. it and he's like yeah i'm not even going to dignify that with a response and it's like are you just that afraid of lying to your brother yeah or are you really Which insulted I think, I but think- he's not He's not afraid of lying to his brother because he lies. He's already lied to him. Yeah. I think that this brings me back to kind of my point at the beginning. I think this actually would have been a lot more interesting of a movie if it was told from Vicky's perspective. Because I think we would have gotten a lot more insight and emotions and understanding of these characters, which I don't think we explore at all. Yeah. And maybe we'd, we would have seen more of the lashing out that, that caused her to say you were worse than you are yeah. depicted in this film yeah i mean i think i think we could have pushed the characters further and gotten more insight into what was really happening but and, for the record his, and, and we could have had less boxing because sure, it wasn't yeah. relevant yeah <laughs> uh jake's children think that the film is is overdoes the violence on his part hmm. that they think that he was a nicer person than that but obviously i would trust vicky over the kids because i assume that he would probably spare his uh more violent tendencies for when they're not around yeah so it would be hard for them to judge him fairly but um what about your list jess where's this going on the list (sighs) yeah so it's it's not as high as i think people would expect it to be it's it's at 42 for me okay uh it is below blues brothers and above last married couple in in america and again it's because i don't really need to to see this film again i appreciate it I think that is a lot. There's a lot of stuff in there to appreciate, but yeah. it's you know for me, it's pretty low on my rewatch list. Yeah, Richard, what do you got? Uh, I have it at 34, uh, putting it just below the stuntman and just above the big red one. I have it literally exactly between you two at 38. <laughs> um, it's right below Hopscotch and just above the Mirror Cracked. I think that's everything for Raging Bull. 
If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Seems Like Old Times which IMDb describes like so. Wrongfully accused of a bank robbery, a writer seeks the help of his ex-wife, who is now married to the soon-to-be Attorney General of California. We leave you now with the trailer for Seems Like Old Times. I want quiet in this courtroom! Your Honor. Your Honor? Hold it, hold it. Hold it. Just, will you hold it? No, Your Honor. Well said, well spoken. This is the story of a lawyer and her husband, the district attorney. They offered me the attorney general spot. Oh, what a wonderful surprise. You want another one? Mm-hmm. Your ex-husband robbed a bank. This is also the story of her ex-husband, a writer. I don't get it. And two thugs. This cleared up for you? No, I'm afraid not. You see, I'm blind. And a bank. Hi, can I help you? Yes, you can and a stick-up. Read it, it's self-explanatory. What do I do? I don't know, let's take a look. Stick up, put all your money in the bag, one more sound and you're dead. God bless you. And a getaway. I was wondering if I could quit the gang. If the man winds out, let him out. And when Neil Simon brings them all together, it seems like old times. Did you rob that bank? Sort of. What do you mean, sort of? I did, but I did enjoy it. I don't believe it. You can believe it? Oh, sh- Our wedding pictures didn't turn out that good. It's part Chevy Chase. You know, the last thing in the world I want to do is hurt you. I'm putting you in any jeopardy. I'll leave right now. I'm okay. Part Goldie Hawn. Hi! Oh, where did he come from? If I was a stray dog, this is the first place I'd come to. Part Charles Grodin. They're getting off. Come on. Come on, get down. Why am I always the last one in the neighborhood to get into bed with you? Put them all together. Hold it right there. You're under arrest. Police are on their way. Didn't like the chicken, huh? And it's the funniest Neil Simon ever. How are you going to kidnap us if I'm the one driving the car? If I'm the one holding the gun. I buy that. If you're innocent, they'll never send you to jail. Is that how it works, Chester? Not in my neighborhood. Seems like old times. A comedy for Christmas. I 